Welcome to episode 63 of the Annex Wealth Management SWAT podcast, Monday, August 7th. Strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats. It's insight and perspective for members of the Annex Wealth Management Investment Committee. Two doctors in the house, so I'm just going to do it alphabetically. We've got Brian Jacobson, Chief Economist. Welcome. <laughs> Thanks for having me. And Todd Voigt, Chief Investment Strategist. Welcome to you. Good morning, Danny. Well, I'll start off, I guess, with upcoming economic data. Today, Monday, we got consumer credits expected to be up from the previous month, been elevated. That's kind of a key thing, right? As savings have come down, people have spent down their stimulus savings. Right. They've been shifting over to credit card debt. Right. And you wonder how long that can last. Thursday CPI, that's a big one for July. Expect year on year to start rising again after a lull in June. Year on year at that point was about 3% due to base effects. Uh, Expect CPI to be 3.3 this July. Budget deficit numbers are coming out on Thursday as well. Expect that to be about negative 95 billion. Prior month was negative 227 billion. Anything you want to add to that? It's going to be a big topic, I think, that we're going to jump into as far as those deficit numbers, especially. Right. And Friday, we got Michigan Consumer Sentiment and Related and US PPI, another inflation gauge. Let's take a look back because we are going to get into the strengths, weaknesses, opportunities, and threats, oh, yeah. especially as it relates right. to the big news from last week, right, which Fitch was downgrade. yeah that big Fitch downgrade. Interesting thing is that happened almost 12 years after S&P downgraded the U.S. debt. And so the big credit rating agencies, you have S&P, so Standard & Poor's, Fitch, and Moody's. There are others as well, uh, but those are typically the big three. And so now two of the big three have downgraded U.S. government debt from AAA down to one notch lower. And for those of you who like investing jargon, now the government has a split rating, meaning that uh, two of the credit rating agencies agree, and then there's that one holdout, Moody's. It'll be interesting to see how long they hold out and uh, if they're going to do anything. And that Fitch downgrade it was based on more or less the outlook in the next three years and the yeah. fiscal situation uh, going forward. I might just move right into strengths. The strength is that it's still double A plus rated. That's a, uh, yeah, that's still a good grade. It, it, it actually reminds me a little bit of when I was in an e- economics class in high school and uh, there was an extra credit problem. Teacher gave me back the paper and said, you got an A+, plus, but don't worry, it's a high A+. Plus. I'm like, yeah. what does that even mean? <laughs> right. Other strengths include the fact that the U.S. dollars are still a reserve currency. The one big one that's a strength is when we start talking more about the Fitch downgrade in the, in the SWAT, that the double A+, plus, the other comparable companies that are rated AA plus have no budget deficit. They have positive earnings. Mm-hmm. The U.S. government has budget deficit. The advantage is the government can tax, has the power to tax. That's not to be taken lightly. It's an advantage over corporates. Now, we'll get into that part when we talk about weaknesses, threats, and so forth. The economy and the employment situation still support tax revenues. Mm-hmm. We got a little addendum to that as well. Anything you'd like to add to strengths that you see? You know, I think as far as the strengths, the U.S. dollar is still a reserve currency in the sense that a lot of foreign investors still do like it. We have seen a drop off in some of that foreign demand, but there's still quite a bit of appetite for U.S. government debt. I would say that also, you know, when you think about the willingness and the ability of the government to pay. 
they have the ability to pay because these this is debt that is denominated in U.S. dollars and they create U.S. dollars. And so there's really uh, no shortage of their ability to pay. I think that, you know, what Fitch had called out was almost some of the governance is what they called it, which was more the willingness, right? These debt standoffs, they don't really like that. Now, I personally, you know, took uh, a, a kind of a look at does the government have that willingness to pay, like if it actually came down to it. And I think they do. Back in 2013, the Federal Reserve, the Treasury, they kind of came together and they had a plan for making payments on the debt. And so in a way, I think that the Fitch downgrade, while I agree with the general thrust of the idea that, hey, debts and deficits are just too high, doesn't look like there's a coherent plan for bringing things under control on that front. But if credit ratings are supposed to reflect the risk of default, that is, not being able to make your contractual payments, I think they were off base on that front. You mean they would have dropped the rating to triple C? <laughs> yeah, if it was purely based on debt and deficits, you know, in a way, it, it does raise the question to me is why do credit rating agencies even bother issuing credit ratings for governments that issue debt in their own currencies? Those are currencies you know, they can print. You know, it harkens back to the modern uh, monetary theory idea. And I, I got to say, I take exception to that whole idea because it grows into a house of cards mm -hmm, when this true. whole thing falls apart and you monetize the debt. Oh, sure. And it yeah. creates all kinds of problems, the worst of which you see in other emerging countries where they're faced with austerity programs. Now, I don't anticipate such an austerity type situation for the U.S. economy, but I do anticipate there's going to be a cutback in spending, higher taxes to, sure. to fund this deficit. And then you got the, the other side of this in the monetary uh, policy aspects of it. The other point about that is, the, in terms of weaknesses, I didn't have it as a weakness, but when I think about it as we're talking, that the jabs that are at that reserve currency status, mm -hmm. coming from multiple angles, multiple jabs, yep. you got the dysfunction in Washington, you got the bickering over the debt ceiling, you got the budget issues coming up in October, you've got the downgrade, and you know, it's going to be only a matter of time, I would suspect, and maybe it's subtle, maybe it's sudden, I don't know, where foreigners say, you know, we got to find something else to transact in. It's not about M&A activity necessarily sure. either, it's about transacting in, in other currencies. I, I don't know how, what form that would take, it'd be obviously uncharted territory. Mm -hmm. Well, you know, that's so fascinating because it gets into, I think, a rich area of research about what does it mean to be a reserve currency? How did the dollar get to its point of prominence? And really, it comes out of World War II with like the reconstruction of Europe, the establishment of the Bretton Woods system, and has been over the years, and this really began in the 90s, a slight decline of the use of the dollar for uh, transactions between other countries. Like if you imagine that you're in Chile, and you're buying, say, you know, beef from Brazil, right? Those transactions, for the most part, are denominated in U.S. dollars, right. and they're settled in U.S. dollars. And part of it is because, you know, the stability and the value of the dollar during the time from which it takes for you agree to the transaction, and then the goods are shipped. Um, it was that stability of the dollar that was made it really attractive as being that type of a reserve currency. And then there's another use of it, which is where other governments, their central banks want to hold U.S. dollars. Now, my take on it is as countries move away 
from trying to manage their exchange rates. You know, in the United States, we technically have a freely floating exchange rate. So right. there's really no need for the Federal Reserve to be holding, you know, Canadian dollars and all sorts of other, you know, currencies in order to try to manage the exchange rate. You contrast that to China, the People's Bank of right. China, they have a lot of U.S. dollars because they manage their exchange rate. So as countries move away from managing their exchange rates to freely floating them, that's just kind of a natural progression to where the dollar is no longer a reserve currency because you don't really need a reserve currency in that case. Right, right. And, and a lot of Asian countries and any of those that have managed pegs are in that kind of quasi-fixed yes, yep. uh, currency regime. And the weaknesses might add budget deficits at the widest outside of a recession, which was another uh, reason probably for that Fitch downgrade right now. Primary deficit, that's the Social Security and Medicare, Medicaid rather, we're approaching 6.1%. That level is comparable to what we looked at or saw in the 80s. Mm-hmm. And I think back then that budget deficit was largely due to the extent of military spending. Not so nice as it sounds, that's productive spending as Mm -hmm. opposed to helicopter money and transfer payments and giving money away is not very productive to stimulate spending. That I consider a weakness. And then the larger and widening budget deficit Mm -hmm. will embed inflation in the economy. So now you start thinking, well, that's going to put a floor on how far down inflation could really go. Yeah, and, and if it puts a floor under how low inflation can go, does kind of put a floor as to how low interest rates can go as far as right. nominal yields. If you think about most of the bond returns, the bond bull market from the early 1980s to you know just a couple years ago was really yields making that real long-term decline. You started fantastic coupon income because of the starting yield, but then declining interest rates, that meant that you had some capital gains as well. And then at this point, you know, I'm not sure we had a bear market in 2022 where you suddenly went off of zero up to a positive number. And then I think the question is on the way forward, is it likely that we're going to plateau here, move higher? I I find it hard to believe that we're going to move much lower. There are some factors at work that could push it lower. Oftentimes, the real yield component of a bond, so there's the real part and then the inflation compensation part. And the real part is over long periods of time, highly correlated with growth. So if you have low growth, you typically have low real yields. And uh, if you're not really investing for growth, you shouldn't expect high growth going forward. But if that inflation compensation part um, has only so low that it's going to go, that probably puts a floor under how low yields are going to go as well. So maybe at best going forward, it's almost like yields marginally higher or just, you know, enjoy clipping your coupons. Right, right. You know, with that said, want to go right into opportunities? Yeah, may as well. Well, let's uh, put a little portfolio management twist to this. Opportunities, and I know we may sound like a broken record over multiple swats, but I'll be a little more laser-focused on short bonds. Uh, You know, the zero to two-year, you got money markets at over five, 520, 530. You got short-term bonds pretty much in the same area. Ironically, with this Fitch downgrade, we see treasury yields on the short end higher than corporates. I don't know if you want to comment on that, but... This is a great opportunity to back into short bonds, and longer bonds are lower, but they've bumped up because of that Fitch downgrade. So short bonds, corporates, investment grade, or treasuries, 
Uh, while we're on this subject, I can get this out because it's always been in the back of my mind. I can make an easy argument for owning corporates, mm-hmm. investment-grade corporates. Okay, now, while Costco and Amazon don't have the ability to tax, they do have strong balance sheets. They will weather the storm. I mean, you can think of uh, back in the late 30s and 40s and, you know, bombs are dropping in England. You know, companies will survive. I remember an old story of Keynes, John Maynard Keynes, the C plus I plus G guy. And I know Brian knows, but he, he managed money mm-hmm. besides being, a, you know, as a director of three insurance companies, besides writing the second most influential book in economic person history. And while he's doing that, he, he, there's these, you think they're emails, but they're actual letters going back and forth between him and the board. In the meantime, Hitler's bombing England. He's just invaded France. He's bombing England. And he's saying, buy stocks. The board is saying, buy, go to cash. He's saying, buy stocks. And it's back and forth. Finally, he say, why go to stocks? He said, in fact, buy American stocks. Why? Because if the Germans succeed, your pounds are going to turn into Deutschmarks. <laughs> you know, these companies are going to find a way to survive, and you're a shareholder of a record. It's just an interesting story about that. But getting back to today with Treasury yields higher than corporates on the short end tells you the perceived risk is higher in Treasuries than corporates. So I could easily make an argument that I would be more inclined to pile into investment-grade corporates on the short end then necessarily, I don't have an issue with treasuries because, sure. like I said, they're, they're double A plus rated anyway. Yeah, and, and when you look at other countries, it's, it's not unusual for some of the companies to have yields that are lower than their government bond yields. It is very strange to have that in the United States. Exactly. And uh, when we were looking at it as an investment committee, you look at it, it's about the bonds maturing within the next two years. That's where most of the distortions are. And I do wonder how much of that is just because people are just going to hold on to those bonds. Right. It's like how reliable are the prices really? Um, Because the fixed income market is so fragmented as far as what the trading and uh, we're not talking huge percentage points here, right? It, it's fairly small, but right. it is it is a distortion, and it does make you scratch your head and say, okay, well, now where's the opportunity? And if U.S. government bond yields on the short end, so zero to two years, are higher than what you can get on some of the corporates, well, you know, maybe those treasuries are pretty attractive on the short end, right? Yeah, you know, At least I, for the near term. Right. You know, and I noticed, I don't mean to interrupt, but I noticed that we were talking about it as an investment team back in like fall and mm-hmm. saying, watch for this, because this is, these are things that happen yep. like Spain and Italy and so forth. And it actually happened at the end of the year. It also happened when the debt crisis was really heating up. Then there was, well, what if the U.S. really does default? And then you got these higher yields on treasuries. And and uh, all of a sudden, you feel a little safer being in those corporates. I, we will spend all day <laughs> if I don't move along here. But other areas, um, multinationals, the low debt multinationals with revenues denominated in foreign currency would be another opportunity cost. I also would add in small cap international. Small cap tends to be cyclical anyway, mm-hmm. happens to be local. And their revenues de- denominated local, their costs may be denominated U.S. dollars or local, mm-hmm. that would be an opportunity. If it's cost that's in commodities, it's denominated in dollars, right? So if the dollar's getting weaker, their costs are going down. So there's an opportunity in small cap international threats. You know, as I ponder these things, I think of the individual investor. You got yields, you got the market. If you have a correction in the market, which we, you know, after five straight months up on the S&P and so forth, you're due for a correction. That goes without saying. 
what if it goes down 5%? A lot of times individual clients think in the here and now, and they use the term, you know, the market's making 20%. And I always correct that saying it's, it's not making, it's made 20%. It's about where you go from here. Conversely, the market's down 5 or 10%. I'm losing 5 or 10%. I say, you're not losing. You lost 5 or 10%. Now it's about where do you go from here? Mm-hmm. Well, when you get to that, I think of an inflection point where, and, and I'd like your opinion on this, just from market experience and trading in the markets all these years, you get to an inflection point where people say, I'm down 5%. I'm looking at money markets paying 5%, and I can't help but believe that that looks like an underappreciated asset class paying 5%. And it, it'll be more appreciated if you have a correction in the market, which can also kind of exacerbate the mm-hmm. decline. What do you think? I think that's correct. You finally have a situation where money markets, cash, it, it's earning something, right? It, it's not like it feels like dead money where the only reason why you put it there is purely for protection to the proverbial and you're not looking for return on your investment. You're just looking for a return of your investment, right? And this environment now with yields on cash higher, it actually becomes an investment. It kind of goes back to the whole, you mentioned John Maynard Keynes, where he talked about the uh, cash is actually an investable asset, right? It's part of that portfolio picture. And what I'm really curious about is if you do see a pullback, because one of the challenges in trying to time a pullback is Let's say you're like, oh, if we're due for a correction, yes, but from what level, right? Is it from where we are now? Is it from 10% higher, 20% higher? Because we will see a correction if we wanted to find that as 10% down or a bear market that's 20% down. But from what level does that actually begin? And then where does it take you? And then what's the opportunity cost of waiting for that? But now the opportunity cost is kind of lower because of the benefit of higher well, yields on fact, cash. The market's been up as much as it has here to date. I would also add if deficits as a percent of GDP is high in a growth period. Mm-hmm. I, I it's don't want to get unusual. back to the Fitch downgrade, but yeah. I think that's one of the factors they mentioned, or at least Bloomberg mentioned, that there was a cause for that downgrade is that you've got 6% plus deficit, budget deficit in a growing yeah. economy when you really rather have that in a in a recession, you got some dry powder to self-correct, and yep. you're kind of taking that away with having it so high right now. And then the other problem or threat is that tax revenues have been declining. They've dropped off the largest I've gotten my notes in a long time. Mm-hmm. Yeah, some of the tax revenue declined this year is because you didn't have as many capital gains from 2022, right? And right. so if you think about tax filing season and all that, you're doing a lot of the 2022 market experience that shows up in tax revenues around April 15th ish, right. you know, in 2023. So there is that the market can play a big role in boosting revenues or dropping revenues for the government because of capital gains taxes. Yeah, you're right, and especially bigger moves. 1999, people were, I think, kind of confused by the fact that we're running a budget surplus, and it was the wealth effect from stocks. Mm -hmm. After five years of rallies in stocks, and you've got all that realized gain that's being taxed that resulted in a a big budget surplus back then, but conversely, you don't have that 
that now. You're right. Yeah, and it's but it is weird about how big our budget deficit is, and I think that even despite Fitch's downgrade, the market kind of downgraded the government as well with the move up in yields. Right, higher yields come; it's reflecting more risk, and so the market did it. But it was, in my opinion, if you looked at the intraday moves for yields. There was some reaction to the Fitch downgrade, but a lot of it began when the U.S. Treasury released their information about how much debt they are projecting that they need to issue. It was much bigger than expected. And then you had a strong ADP number as far as with the, the private payrolls. And so, oh, well, if you have somewhat stronger growth, but the government is also going to be issuing this much more debt. To me, it was almost the the Fitch story, even though that got all the headlines, that was almost the side story to what caused yields to move so much higher so quickly. Uh, Another threat would be yield curve control through quantitative easing. If the Fed has to go back to that, you're going to lower longer rates. You know, the Fed doesn't necessarily for many, many years up until the last 10 years, doesn't get involved in the long end of the market. The market determines long interest rates. Mm -hmm. Fed controls more of the short interest rates. But they dipped into the long end through quantitative easing, and they're kind of getting out through quantitative tightening. And if they have to go back in to control those rates to prevent them from going higher, you've got a form of yield curve control. And I I don't know if you have a thought on that. So the Federal Reserve, under their mandate, a lot of people talk about how they have two goals about low inflation and full employment. Now, technically, under the Federal Reserve Act, it says that it's supposed to be stable prices, not steadily increasing prices, right? But, you know, they interpret that to mean steady inflation instead. So stable prices, full employment, and moderate long-term interest rates. They never like to talk about that third mandate, but sometimes that does have to come into play as far as with financial stability, right? When they were doing quantitative tightening, if you remember back to 2018 to 2019, the some of the repo madness, so in the repo market, they had to intervene there. Um, they've intervened as well during COVID, corporate bond market, muni bond market, to, for financial stability reasons. There's nothing that would prevent them from intervening in the treasury market to keep interest rates, whether it's at the 10-year or 30-year point, from making what they would characterize as disorderly moves, right? So that's very subjective, but there's nothing that would prevent them from doing that. You know, it's funny. What's odd about that is I think the market and many commentators were saying you you don't need quantitative easing, yet they did it for 10 years. Yeah. You know, you don't need quantitative easing as we head into this period. So maybe it's in in an emergency situation they intervene. It it always seems to be an emergency situation. (laughs) What I think the end result is it embeds inflation into this whole thing again. Not to circle back on that, but we we were under threat, so (laughs) I might as well keep going. Annex Wealth Management SWAT Podcast, Episode 63, our headline strength. Economic growth still supportive. Headline weakness. Big debts and deficits. Uh, You've got deficits that are consistent with a recession, not an expansion. Headline opportunity. Short bonds and multinationals. Headline threat. Some unanchoring of inflation expectations because of the debt deficits and possibility of Fed intervention. Todd Voigt, Chief Investment Strategist, thank you. Thank you. Brian Jacobs and Chief Economist, thank you. Oh, it's an honor. 
Annex Wealth Management, LLC, is a registered investment advisor. For more information about our firm, please visit AnnexWealth.com. The information in this podcast is for educational and entertainment purposes only and is subject to change without notice. The opinions expressed are those of the participants and don't necessarily reflect on those of Annex Wealth Management, LLC. Information presented should not be construed as tax, legal, or investment advice or a recommendation or a solicitation for the sale of any product or strategy. Listeners are encouraged to seek advice from qualified professionals to determine whether any information presented may be suitable for their specific situation. Investments involve risk. Neither Annex Wealth Management LLC nor its podcast participants shall be liable for losses resulting from decisions based on information or viewpoints presented on this podcast.